Remember who you are, Simba, and remember to take out the trash. Hey everybody, this is Dr. Doug Birch, and you are listening to The Fairly Spiritual Show. On today's show, I'm going to talk about some theologies that keep bad pastors in positions of power. What are some assumptions we make with certain theologies that allow narcissistic pastors to stay in control far too long? We'll look at this, signs that narcissistic pastors need to take a break or actually find another job, and we'll look at better ways to exist in leadership and within a church on today's Fairly Spiritual Show. for joining me today. I am Dr. Doug Bursch. I pastor a small church uh, in the Puget Sound region. Been doing it about 22 years, maybe 23. I haven't quite done the math recently, but I also do this podcast, The Fairly Spiritual Show. And yes, for regular listeners, I am sorry. I have not done one of these in a long time. I hope to change that pattern and get on more of a regular podcast producing trend. But I don't know what it is. You know, my new book, Posting Peace, uh, Why Social Media Divides Us and What We Can Do About It. I did a lot of podcast guest hosting, or not guest hosting, appearing as a guest on those podcasts. And I got a little podcasted out. I got tired of hearing my voice. But I want to share with you... uh, Some thoughts that I think will be of interest to many of you. In fact, this is going to kind of be a two-part series. Uh, Maybe I could call it like season 24 of the Fairly Spiritual Show. But today I'm going to talk specifically about theologies that keep bad pastors and bad leaders in positions of authority. I'm, I'm going to focus on a couple theological convictions that can actually be twisted and misused to keep pastors in positions of authority. And hopefully we'll talk about better ways to abide in a church, in a leadership structure. And then uh, the next podcast, which I hope to bring out next week, I'm going to talk about the real reason the church is declining. And I don't think it's because of controlling narcissistic pastors or because of unhealthy churches. Yes, I think it's appropriate to leave unhealthy churches. But the big trend on why the church is declining, I don't believe it really has anything to do with the church being corrupt. Hear me clearly. I do believe there are corrupt churches and corrupt systems and corrupt practices. But there's a bigger trend that's going on that I want to address, and I don't think we are addressing it in our books, in our Christian magazines, I think we're looking at surface-level things, and the reality is something much deeper is happening, and it's going to continue to happen until Christ returns. So that'll be next week. But on today's uh, show, I want to talk about theologies that keep narcissistic pastors—well, let's not just limit it to narcissistic pastors—bad pastors, controlling pastors— problematic, there's a very vague word, problematic pastors in power. Some theologies that are misused 
to keep pastors or to defend pastors who are doing indefensible things. Okay, so where to start? Uh, There's been some popular podcasts out there dealing with uh, some problematic, is that the word I'm going to use, Uh, churches. Uh, There's been an extensive podcast basically looking at Mars Hill and the collapse of Mars Hill and giving explanation for what happened there. Uh, There's also been a podcast, a whole series on Jerry Falwell and Liberty University and some of the the problems there with leadership that just weren't dealt with and might not even being uh, dealt with now. And so I, I've listened to some of that, and there's you know lots of good discussion going on about individual churches and where these individual problems might actually be expressed as a larger trend within Christianity. So today I want to look at, regardless of the individual leaders, here is a trend that I've seen where certain theologies defend bad pastors. Now, here's the first one. People who have a strong uh, Calvinistic understanding of the kingdom of God. And by the way, uh, before you get at me, I'm also going to talk about people who don't have a strong Calvinistic uh, conception of Christianity. So this isn't me just attacking the theology that I'm not. I'm not Calvinistic. But I've seen within Calvinistic theological communities, uh, Reformed communities that have a strong teaching that you know, everything in us is totally depraved, that God does everything, and if anybody prospers, if anyone, you know, comes to Christ, if any church grows in any manner, God does all of that. We we don't have a say in those things. It is predestined. Well, what I've found in settings like this that have a strong push for predestination, and, and I'm not saying all pastors who believe in predestination do this. But this is how I've seen that theology leveraged in toxic ways. Some pastors who have the strong sense that, you know, I'm totally depraved. I was called by God. Anything that is done, God just did it. I don't have any say over that. It's not about what I've done. It's about what God is doing through me. I found pastors of quote-unquote successful churches to at some level use that theology to defend their success. The assumption goes this way, and they might not say it, although some kind of say things that almost outwardly express this deception, but there's this belief, God has clearly preordained me to be successful. The fact that we have a large church, a growing church, multiple campuses, whatever it is, God predestined us to do this. God has predestined me to be the leader to lead this world-changing movement. And so what happens is you start with that idea that I'm God's chosen one. I'm God's anointed one. We clearly are blessed by God because look at the fruit in our life. Look at how many people come. Look at how popular we are. Look at how we have become a light on the hill that everyone is focusing in on. That clearly is a sign that we are God's chosen. Here's the problem with that theology. What you find in communities like that, that have a strong sense that we're called, is you find an arrogance. An arrogance that for some reason, you know, I'm just God's chosen man. I'm going to say man because most of these communities have male-centered leadership. I am God's chosen man, 
and God is clearly working through me, and I'm clearly in the right because look at all the fruit in my life. So what happens in a community like that? Well, maybe a pastor has tremendous fruit, and they're known for their great preaching or their great teaching or, or whatever they're known for, and it's clearly a sign that they're anointed by God, that God is blessing what they're doing because they're God's chosen one. Well, that same pastor, let's say they have a satanic foothold, or let's say they have other aspects of their life that are not producing godly fruit. Let's say they have hidden sin. Let's just say they're jerks. Let's say they're narcissists. Let's say that behind the scenes, when it comes to leadership, they treat people poorly. They have attitudes and actions that don't seem to remotely reflect Christ. Well, what will happen is people will minimize those less than Christ-like expressions. The logic goes like this. Well, well, clearly, from the pastor's perspective, clearly I am God's chosen. I am God's anointed. He wouldn't bless me unless he's using me. So these things that people are complaining about, they really can't be that bad because God wouldn't choose me and anoint me and, and call me to all this fruit uh, if I was someone who was doing terrible things. God doesn't bless and lift up and produce mighty fruit through people who are doing terrible things. So what happens? they begin to minimize those terrible things. They begin to see those terrible things as not important because you know, God's producing the fruit here. If God doesn't want to bless people through my ministry, then he'll stop having people drawn to me. He'll stop having this church grow larger. He'll stop giving me influence. And until God stops doing that, there's no reason to really look at the problems in my life, to look at the fact that there's way too much leadership conflict, that Way too many pastors are coming and going. Way too many people leaving the church hurt. Way too many people saying to me, you're controlling. You're narcissistic. You're mean. You're rude. There's a justification for all those accusations that I can't be that person. That's not a sign of someone who was called by God. So those must be exaggerations because I have clearly been predestined to be the leader of this church, predestined to be a leader during this generation among pastors to radically transform the world. And God wouldn't predestine a leader to do all these great things and allow that leader also to be a terrible person in other areas. So the pastor minimizes his own sin. And sadly, the congregation can do that as well. And it's this predestined concept of, well, we have been predestined to good things, and look at all the great things we're doing. God wouldn't predestine our pastor and our church for all this greatness if he also predestined us for all this terribleness and all these you know, lies and deceit and narcissistic behavior. So there is a minimizing of those behaviors. Or there is a belief that those behaviors won't hurt the church. Because the church moves forward not based on our will and our wants and our behavior, but based on God's leading. So, you know, we don't have to make a big deal about those things because the pastor's narcissistic behavior won't keep us from advancing the kingdom of God. You know, he's weak, he's sinful, sure everyone is, but he is God's chosen one. I, I saw that with Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll. I, I interviewed him a couple times when I had a Seattle radio show about some of his behavior. And that kind of arrogance came across. Clearly, I wouldn't be so blessed unless I wasn't God's chosen one. So if people have a problem 
with what I'm doing. It's their problem with God. And in fact, because they're so blessed in the numbers and the money and the people, they actually will begin to think God not only doesn't care about these narcissistic things or these sinful things that others are talking about, God actually condones those things. He doesn't have any problem with that. He actually likes it. He likes me to be an aggressive, you know, overbearing, non-sensitive, angry, judgmental, whatever the thing is, uh, because he's clearly anointed me by the fruit that I see. So this is one of the problems with a Calvinistic, predestination, reformed mindset. Am I saying that's what true Calvinism or true Reformed theology or predestination is about? No, I'm not. But I have found within that community, that's how sin is justified. That's how uh, narcissism is justified. That's how footholds are justified. It's basically, well, you know, he's got problems, but he's God's man. And I am using he. I believe both men and women can be pastors. But in this context, in those circles, it's almost always a man who's in this position where the fruit of their life, the size of their church, the success in his eyes or the eyes of the church or the eyes of the world justifies that they clearly are predestined to be the leader. And so the sins, the harm, the abuse, the footholds, the weaknesses of that pastor are minimized. Or even they're codified as good. They're called good because, well, God wouldn't allow bad things to come out of this good, sovereignly chosen leader. Okay, so if you think this is just about bashing on Reformed and Calvinism, it is not. And I'm not trying to bash on anything. I just want to look at this because I think you might see this trend in your theological community where it's implied or it's outright stated. Well, you know, God does everything, so God wouldn't want to put a leader in a position of power that was bad, so... Let's just not think what he's doing is bad. Have you seen that logic in the church setting that you're in? Here's another place I see it expressed, and this might be on the opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to free will versus God's sovereignty, and that's within Pentecostal groups. In Pentecostal groups, you find a very similar logic, but it's rooted in a different theological foundation. Most Pentecostals, in general, it's not true of all Pentecostals, but most Pentecostals go within more of an Armenian or Arminianism or a uh, free will, our responsibility matters, choice kind of theological construct. They, in general, tend not to be Calvinist or uh, to be just completely about God's sovereignty. And I understand some Pentecostals are also Charismatics. But what I've found within these Pentecostal communities is this sort of logic. Who does God bless? Well, God blesses his chosen ones. God blesses his anointed one. God blesses those who just pray more and are more obedient and surrender to the power of God and they fast and they pray and they have a greater faith and they believe. When everyone else doubts, they believe more. And so there's this leader concept within the charismatic Pentecostal world where this man or woman of faith, and we say, wow, this man or woman of faith, God is blessing because they have more faith than anyone else, or they have faith to believe and to move forward, and, and they pray, and they seek God's face, and, 
and they believe in miracles and signs and wonders and and they proclaim what they believe to be true and they they walk out with hopeful expectancy what they believe the kingdom of God will become in their lives and in the lives of others. And we begin to call these men or women anointed. They are anointed leaders. And how do do we uh, measure their anointing? Well, they're clearly anointed because look at all these people in their church. Or look at all the amazing buildings they were able to build or the amazing ministries they were able to do. Look at you know this charismatic leader and look at these clearly evident giftings where they can preach and teach and pray in a way where the world seems to be transformed. This is clearly God's anointed. Now, on this side, we make less about what God does, but more about the individual. This individual just prays more, seeks God more, believes in the gifts of the Spirit, believes in prophecy, believes in signs and wonders, believes in healings. They put you know, feet to their faith, and as a result, God has anointed them and blessed them. So what do we do? This person grows a large church. And listen to the terminology I'm using. This person grows a large church, and many people are drawn and gravitate towards this, and their gifting seem to be so evident. They're amazing preachers and proclaimers, and when they pray, they just seem to pray with such authority. Well, what do we do when there's sin expressed in their lives? Or when there's narcissistic behaviors expressed in their life, or there's controlling behaviors or abusive behaviors, we begin to minimize it. And we say, well, well, God wouldn't anoint a wicked person like that. God wouldn't anoint someone who's harmful and sinful and hurts others. We begin to minimize the sin. We say, well, you know, everybody sins and everyone falls short of the glory of God, but But God wouldn't do all these amazing things for someone who is so dedicated for the kingdom of God, or even the belief that someone who is so fervent in their prayer and so fervent in their faith, they could never also be someone who would be abusive or would uh, sexually betray someone or betray their spouse or, or live in sexually inappropriate ways. Those are incongruous because God would not bless someone and give them so many blessings and so much so clear signs that they are clearly an anointed man or woman of God God wouldn't do that and also allow for hidden sin in their life or or allow for them to be really abusive narcissistic leaders in the way they treat their staff or the way they treat people who get close to them so again we use that the- theological conviction as a cover for sin Now, again, I'm not saying that every Pentecostal or person who believes in free will or in faith and in miracles and signs and wonders is going to to, allow narcissists to have free reign in their church. But in both of these areas, whether Calvinism, predestination, or someone with a strong sense of free will and it's about our faith and our willingness to walk out our faith— Both of these theologies can be corrupted, where we lift up the man or woman and we say, clearly, all these accessible signs and wonders, the size of their church, the amount of congregations they've planted, the books that are popular, their their media ministries, the way the world sees them, God would not bless them if they truly had terrible, sinful, depraved behaviors in their life. 
So what do we do when we start seeing depravity rise its ugly head? When we see satanic footholds expressed in these leaders, when we see behaviors that are contrary to the kingdom of God, well, we minimize them. We justify them. We pretend they're not there. We just don't listen to the people who point them out. They clearly don't understand that this person is an anointed leader because on either side, whether it's predestination led by God or it's because of powerful faith led by the person that God blesses, we begin to have this concept of do not touch God's anointed. Do not go against God's anointed. If you go against the leader, you're going against the will of God. So people minimize and justify bad behavior. I think about this in Pentecostal circles. If you've ever been in a Pentecostal circle, um, there's a trend that sometimes people who walk in the prophetic are sometimes very jerky. And I've seen people justify this and say, well, you know, he walks in the prophetic and he just says what is true. And sometimes when you say what is true, it offends people. It's just the nature of that gifting. And, and the, the important thing is they're expressing the gifting. And so what will people do? They will justify a jerky prophet. Now, we know in the New Testament, the Bible says that all prophecy is for the edifying and building up of the church. And if you do that, if you make a legalistic statement to say, well, if someone wants to share the truth of God, they're going to be a jerk, but that's just the way it is. If you make that a principle, then you allow for a satanic foothold to take root in the ministry of prophecy. Then the prophet, quote unquote, can be a jerk and say, well, you know, that's just what prophets are. Prophets are opinionated jerks who say the truth, and it's not my fault, it's God's plan. But we know if you read Scripture, the Scripture does not give an exemption to people who work in the prophetic. We are all called to love, right? The greatest commandment is not uh, just everyone's included but prophets. It's, you, you know, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love God you know, completely, and then love your neighbor as yourself. It's not love your neighbor as yourself unless you're prophetic, and then you can be a jerk. Now, that's just a little example, but the consequences of that kind of behavior are tremendously damaging to the church. Once we say that any form of anointing allows someone to no longer be held accountable for their unloving actions or for their sinful ways, then we have codified a satanic foothold and evil will be the fruit of such a codification. So I want you to look at that. I just gave two examples, and frankly, in any theological construct, we can turn that theological construct into a way to defend sin and to defend satanic footholds. But we see this in larger expressions, but we see it in so many expressions. Even the concept of familiarity, well, this, they couldn't do that. They're my friend. They're a family member. They're someone I love, someone who's loved me, someone who's loved me, and we've broken bread together, and we've fellowshiped together, and we've shared goodness together. They can't possibly some, be someone who would also do such great wickedness. But I believe that these things can happen. I believe that God has created amazing things. And one of the most amazing things God created is not a thing, but it's humans. Humans are wonderfully made. We're made in the image of God to be fruitful, to multiply, and have dominion. God has created an amazing capacity in humans. 
And humans have the ability to worship the creator or to worship the created. And because we have the choice to worship the created, which is us, or the creator, which is God, that every good gift can be corrupted. So God can, let's say, uh, from the sovereign side, God can sovereignly call us out and produce fruit in our lives that's not based on us, but based on him just using us to advance his kingdom. But we can also use what God has created to serve us. So the church that grows, the fruit that we have, the influence that we have, we can now begin to serve the created, and we can serve ourselves and use that which God has created to serve ourselves instead of to serve God. And we see that with every great leader in the Old Testament, uh, from Moses to David to Solomon, that God gave them great gifts, and there came times when instead of serving God with their gift, they served themselves. We see that with Moses, where he spoke to the rock, and, and water came forth, and we see again he's angry, and he hits the rock, and God does not tell him to hit the rock. He hits the rock out of anger, and water flows. So God allows water to flow from that rock, even though Moses doesn't do it the way God told him to do it, because God has given Moses a capacity and a gifting that he can use in disobedience. But God is so disgusted with Moses using his giftings for himself, uh, serving the giftings instead of serving the Creator, that he's not allowed to enter the promised land. We see this with David, where David takes a census, and God did not tell him to take a census, and God is so disgusted that David would make his own decision of trying to see his own power and trying to see his own influence and to measure how large his kingdom is or, or to measure how secure his kingdom is, that that's when the angel of death is sent out and a plague uh, hits Israel because David tries to serve the created, serve himself, serve his kingdom instead of serving the creator. We see this with Solomon, that God gives Solomon great wisdom and Solomon uses his wisdom to be able to be promiscuous with other women instead of to use his wisdom to serve the Lord. And as a result of each of these corruptions, we see a discipline from the Lord. Well, I believe this reality is true today, that on the predestination side, God could have called you and equipped you and chose you and done great things through you, but you still have the ability to serve the created versus the creator. And when pastors begin to serve the created instead of the creator, they begin to allow for greater and greater satanic footholds to, to rule their life and to rule the life of the church. They begin to lift up their own ego, and look what I've done, and look how amazing I am, and this, I deserve this, and I deserve to make the decisions, and I deserve to control the resources, and I deserve to get my way because I am God's anointed, and they begin to do what? Serve the created instead of the creator. And we see this on the free will, Pentecostal side, that people could have maybe had great faith to serve the Lord and a passionate conviction to welcome the kingdom of God. But then God does great things in their life, and instead of serving the Creator, they begin to serve themselves, and they use the resources that come in to serve their kingdom and not God's kingdom. And they use the people to serve their ego and not to serve God who gave them every good and perfect gift. There are so many ways that we mobilize pastors and dysfunctional churches to exist longer than they ever should have existed. Here's the reality. Regardless of your theology, pastors have no right, have no right to ever serve themselves instead of the Creator. They have no right to ever take the gifts that God may have given them or done through them 
are done in spite of them, and to use those gifts to serve themselves. It is appropriate to challenge the narcissistic tendencies of any pastor in love, in grace, in kindness, in gentleness, but clearly. And no good in that pastor's life will somehow balance out the evil they are doing. And it doesn't matter if it's 10% of their ministry is evil or 1% of their ministry is evil. A satanic foothold is a satanic foothold. And once you allow that satanic foothold just to be there, and once you justify it and say, well, you know, the pastor produces good fruit, so we're just going to overlook that. Once you do that, you bring deception into the church, you bring disaster to that body and to that expression. I've pastored for 22 plus years, and I've seen this. I've seen pastors with narcissistic tendencies that people overlook those tendencies because they've got a large church. They get positions of power within their denomination. They get positions of power at conferences. They get positions of power from publishers. But because we codify that narcissistic behavior and say, you can be a jerk as long as you grow your church. You can be a jerk as long as you write good books. You can be a jerk as long as these other fruit exist. Once we codify that, the ultimate fruit of that is a pastor who will begin to harm everything beautiful and sacred in the ministry God has entrusted to their care. I know this is a little harsh, but I just wanted to focus in on this. And one of the signs to me that a pastor is clearly codifying satanic footholds or justifying them based on their good fruit. You know, I have the good fruit of a large church, so we won't look at the bad fruit of my life. One of the signs that you have an unhealthy church is if leadership is turning over on a regular basis. If repeatedly pastors are coming in and then leaving, if there's constant battles between the senior pastor and the pastors that are under that pastor or under that pastor's authority. If a pastor can't get along with other leaders, there is a problem. And if you're justifying it, saying, well, you know, he's just a passionate man, and he's prophetic, and he's anointed, and he's called, and we just need to overlook the fact that he doesn't know how to work with people. If you do that, you are codifying sin and satanic footholds. That will not get better. It doesn't go away. It doesn't go away if you avoid it. It doesn't go away if you minimize it. It doesn't go away. It doesn't go away if the pastor leaves that church and goes to another church. If the pastor doesn't take seriously the fact that they have deep sin issues in their life, and in fact that two things could happen, that one area of their life could be blessed while another area of their life is depraved, if they don't look at that duality or that duplicity, they will continue to harm every community they go to. It'll never stop. It'll never end. And they'll actually recreate that dysfunction in the people they disciple. We all must take this seriously. We must all confront any system, structure, church, institution, or pastor who is justifying their sin because they have good fruit in some other area of their life. The good news of the gospel is we are in a season and a climate of grace so that we can continue to say, God, search my heart, search my ways, and if there be any wicked way in me, point it out so that I can repent and be conformed to the image of Christ. A healthy leader can celebrate the goodness in their life 
and yet also with humility and contrition and obedience, repent of the sins or the footholds or the habits or the actions that they have lived in that are contrary to the good news and the ways of Christ. This is what we're going to do next week. Next week, I'm going to talk about the fact I just talked about, you know, unhealthy narcissistic pastors, and some people are arguing, well, that's why the church is in decline, and that's why people are leaving the church, and until these pastors and these churches and these systems get better, people are no longer going to be part of a church body. I do not believe that's the reason. And I'm going to tell you what I believe to be the real reason the church is declining and will continue to decline into the future, and it's much bigger than unhealthy pastors and unhealthy churches. So I'd love it if you could listen to that show as well. Please share this with others if it resonates with your heart. Uh, The best way you can support me is to buy my book, Posting Peace, Why Social Media Divides Us and What We Can Do About It. You can get that at Amazon or through my website, fairlyspiritual.org. That's fairlyspiritual.org. Now make room for the Lord. He knows you by name. He loves you dearly. He's not through with you yet. It's okay the reality that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's where grace comes in. That's where repentance comes from. That's a good thing. It is not okay to justify that sin because in the eyes of others, we are an anointed leader. Let's repent of that attitude and come humbly to the Lord and watch as he transforms our lives, our churches, our systems, and our institutions. Love you guys. See you next week.